0: This is the Biblical Mind podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture.
1: From the perspective of Jewish, uh, we could say theology, philosophy, or just how Judaism defines itself, uh, as a faith, as a people, uh, biblically, and also in terms of our traditions. How Judaism defines itself, uh, Christianity is—it should be much more important to Jews than it is. And mm-hmm. uh, let me explain that a l- little more deeply. Judaism, if you read the Bible, the, the, let's call it the, the people of Israel. The nation of Israel has a purpose, and it was chosen for a particular purpose in the Bible. And that purpose is a universal one, so it's a very interesting thing. They're meant to be a separate people, distinct, with their own relationship to God that revolves around a covenant of laws and their, their own nation and their own land. So there's a very, there's very much a a uh, uh, in a a, um, a specific identity, particular private identity of the Jewish people. But it's very clear from the outset that the purpose of this this special nation is to influence the world. The best expression of that is in Exodus 19, when they're when they're standing at Sinai, and God calls the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is a beautiful. You know, sometimes these biblical phrases kind of wash over us. Mm -hmm. They're sort of poetic. Oh, kingdom of priests and holy nation. Okay, but let's break it down though. What does that mean? The Hebrew phrase for kingdom of priests. Uh, is Mamlechet Kohanim. You know, let me back up. Let me back up, Drew. Uh, Exodus 19 is a very important chapter. I think anyone who who studies the Bible, uh, you know, there are certain chapters that stand out. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, is obviously, you know, gets top billing in that part of the Bible. But Exodus 19 from a theological perspective is actually, I find to be a, a more important chapter even than the Ten Commandments. Because in Exodus 19 is, the, is kind of the introduction to the covenant at Sinai, hmm. where God is in dialogue with the nation of Israel through Moses. There's a lot of interesting things in that in that chapter and it really frames the covenant of the Ten Commandments, the revelation at Sinai is framed by Exodus 19. So it's worth anyone listening to this to open up Exodus 19 and read it carefully, read it slowly, read it carefully, and, and, and look at the, the exact phrases that are, take, that are spoken there. Look at the, at, the, at the back and forth between God and the nation of Israel. You learn a lot from that, that chapter. But right at the outset, where God is introducing this covenantal experience that they're about to have in this new relationship, he calls on the nation to be a kingdom of priests. The Hebrew phrase is mamlechet. Kohanim, Mamlechet uh, means a Mamlacha. It means a kingdom. Mamlechet Kohanim, kingdom of priests. Kohanim, priests. The Hebrew word Kohen, If you know Jews, named Cohen. Right. Right. Cohen that's, brothers. That's, exactly. Well,
0: Leonard Cohen. Yeah.
1: Leonard Cohen. There you go. Leonard Cohen was a, from a priestly family. That simply means they're from a priestly family. That they're from a family that traces its lineage back to Aaron, the high priest. But the Hebrew word kohen does not in the Bible only refer to the family of Aaron. It's it's actually a generic term for someone who serves a priestly role. So for example, mm. when Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, is introduced to us, mm. he's introduced to us as Kohain Midian, the a priest of Midian. Okay, or like the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel who get, you know, who, who get uh who get taken to the cleaners roasted, by yeah. uh, you know who get roasted basically by, yeah. by Elijah. They're, they're also kohanim. So this word Kohain means someone who serves the ministering role, serves a priestly role. So what is a kingdom of priests? Now, obviously, God was not calling the nation of Israel to all be clergy. Hmm. You know, who's, who's, who's flipping the burgers and doing my taxes in a kingdom of priests? Okay, it, the, it obviously means that this is a defining uh, character trait, a defining quality of this nation. This is the national mission. So I prefer to translate the phrase or to paraphrase it as a priestly kingdom or a Mm. priestly society. Mm. What that means is that just as a priest, a Kohen is meant to his role is to facilitate and to enable and to assist the flock in drawing closer to and in worshiping the deity in question. So, too, that is the role of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has a a mission to draw the whole world into greater relationship with God, ultimately expressing itself in, you know, these eschatological visions, like Isaiah referring to the the temple in Jerusalem of the future as the house of prayer for all nations, or, you know, and and a dozen or, or dozens more verses in the Bible that speak about all the peoples of the earth, all worshiping the God of Israel, Streaming to the Jerusalem to connect with the God of Israel. So that's so the Jewish people has the nation of Israel has a universal mission Uh, But Over the course of our history that universal mission kind of fell away. It fell into the background I should say Mm -hmm. now in our liturgy. It's still very prominent You open up a, a Jewish prayer book and you see prayers throughout our liturgy from top to bottom that speak of this universal mission but but culturally, when you spend 2000 years in exile and you're a small people and no one's really listening to what you have to say and you're being persecuted and your, your primary goal is to survive, retain your identity and pass that baton to the next generation with minimal influence from the, outside, the hostile outside world. It's very easy over the course, if that goes on for 2000 years, it's pretty easy to forget about the fact. That you actually are a kingdom of priests. Mm-hmm. So, so what does this have to do with Christianity? Well, you know the the, the great Jewish scholar Maimonides. Uh, he was probably the greatest. I mean, I shouldn't say probably. He's really unequivocally the greatest Jewish uh, theologian and legal authority uh, uh, in our in our history, uh, meaning since the Talmud, really, uh, and you know for the for the last. You know, 1500 years, there's no one who's really more authoritative. It's kind of like the, I guess the best Christian analog would be like Augustine or something like that.
0: Yeah. Well, depending on what tradition, Aquinas or Augustine. Yeah, but probably closer to Augustine. Yeah. In other
1: words, we're talking about a very authoritative ancient thinker who everyone studies and everyone knows. And and even if you disagree with him, you have to deal with him, right? I mean, that's the same. That's why I say it's, it's a similar analogy. So Maimonides, so it's hard, uh, there's no way to overstate his prominence in Judaism. So right. I'm saying this for the benefit of of uh, you know, Christian listeners, but to understand who we're talking about here, this isn't a marginal thinker. This is any any Jew who's who has any knowledge at all of Judaism is aware uh, of Maimonides as a major authority. And Maimonides in his code of law, his code of law covers everything. It's not just about the laws of kosher food and the Sabbath, but it even includes things like the laws of making war and the laws of building the temple and all kinds of, but it covers everything. So in there, he has a passage where his subject is is the definition of Messiah. Mm -hmm. How do you determine who the Messiah is? A fascinating passage. And in that passage, it would be interesting for Christians to study that, to see what the Jewish definition of Messiah is. That Mm -hmm. could be an interesting topic. Um, But in that passage, he goes off on a tangent, uh, and, and he speaks about Christianity. And uh, his point, the reason he brings it up there, is as a way of saying why Jesus was not the Messiah from a Jewish perspective. But in that passage, he speaks about uh, how damaging Christianity has been to the Jewish people, uh, how you know the persecution that the Jews were suffering, you know, like uh, like the Crusades, and there's so much that that the the Jewish people suffered at the hands of, of Christianity, and and then, and then he shifts gears and he says however meaning even though jesus for, for Jews jesus is not our messiah the purpose of christianity was ultimately to serve the purposes of the ultimate redemption of humanity and the ultimate kingdom of god how so and this is almost an exact quote he says well as a result of christianity the whole world now knows about the bible the whole world now is aware of of those stories, of those laws, he's aware of all those concepts. And even if from the Jewish perspective, there's erroneous understandings of some of those concepts, the the seeds have been planted.
0: Hmm.
1: And that ultimately this will lead to a, a bringing together of the minds of Christians and Jews so that we will all ultimately serve God together. So, you know, when you ask like, why is Jewish Christian relations important to Jews? there, you know, the Jewish people, you know, if we brought in that question and say, why is relations with any other religion important to Jews? Why is relations with the outside world important to Jews? There's many Jews. uh, And I'm talking about traditional Jews, Jews who are committed. For many Jews, perhaps even most Jews, their answer is, I couldn't care less about the nations of the world. All they've been doing is causing us problems for centuries. You know, we're happy to be home now, back in Israel and have our nation again, and you know, the heck with everyone else. That's really the uh, the pr- the, pr- the most dominant attitude in the Jewish community.
0: Hmm. So
1: you know, so that like I get a lot of pushback for the work that I do, speaking in churches, speaking in Christian seminaries, uh, engaging with Christian leadership.
0: Pushback from Jews, from religious pushback Jews, from Jews yeah. for yeah, sure. Yeah. There's a
1: lot of criticism yeah. we get in our community. Uh, people who work in this line of work, like myself, uh, you know, who are out there. Uh, but you know why Why is it important to Jews is that, well, we finally have a world in which people are listening to what we have to say. We finally have a, a, a potential for real relationships where we can talk about the word of God together, and we could talk about these shared values. And ultimately, the entire purpose of Judea, of the Jewish people is to engage with the rest of the world around faith and around God, because that's we're, we're supposed to be the kingdom of priests. So without getting into the particular details of which particular agenda item, uh, you know, y- you know, I'd be pushing in a particular conversation, uh, you know, what that engagement looks like at a practical level as a value, it has to be important to Jews. Yeah. Again, that doesn't mean it is, but that's, that's what I would answer to that question.
0: And, and from that perspective, you can walk, you know, it is a fact that you can walk into a church, anywhere in the Anglophone world or whatever languages you speak. <clears throat> and you can say, let's open our Bibles too. And you can speak and they can listen. I mean, that's, uh, that's the kind of the yeah. miracle that Maimonides is talking about
1: there. Right. right. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, you know, that, you know, from my perspective, what I'm involved in, when you talk about jewish christian relations there's really different kinds of jewish christian relations so mm-hmm. there's like a kind of old fashioned jewish christian relations which still exists and i engage in it somewhat which is what i would call ecumenical dialogue mm-hmm. you know where you'll have and this stuff has been going on for a long time where you know you'll have like bishops from the vatican meeting with leading rabbis and they'll discuss issues and they'll come out with statements mm-hmm. uh you know these sort of you know, carefully worded statements of approval of each other, and you know how we don't hate each other anymore, and things like that. Uh, but you know, I'll, I'll put it this way: when I, if I come home from you know at the end of a day, and I see my wife, and my wife says to me, "Honey, we need to talk about the relationship," <laughs> so I'm worried, you know, because like, right. whoa, what happened? Right, right? It, something's wrong, and and. You know, you know, as um, you know, uh, any married person listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. Like, what do you mean we need to talk about the relationship? Because if everything is going well, you don't talk about the relationship. You tend to talk about the relationship when you're trying to resolve something. Right. W- when things are going well, you just experience the relationship. You live in the relationship. And, you know, so for me, what I'm involved in more than talking about the relationship, even though that's what we're doing here right now, Is living in the relationship. Mm. So, for example, when I go to a church, when I go to a Christian seminary, I'll just really teach scripture from a Jewish perspective, or I'll share with them. I guess you could say it's somewhat talking about the relationship. I'll share a a, maybe an example of traditional Jewish hermeneutics to expose these, you know, let's say a group of seminarians in in a Christian seminary to our way of viewing scripture, just to enlighten them. I'm not trying to turn them into Jews, I'm not trying to, you know, to change uh, their theology and their Christian faith, but really just to share our perspective, uh, to, you know, to build mutual respect and to have and to have that shared experience. You know, I believe in the Bible as the Word of God. You believe in the Bible as the Word of God. We come with different traditions. Let's study it together. That's the way I see it.
0: I have a story for you because uh, it happened to me this last week. I was speaking at a conference in North Carolina, and I had a and I had suggested to the people I was talking to in part of my presentation that uh, one good way for Christians to understand Scripture better is to read it with non Christians and especially Jews. Um, you can okay. read it with atheists as well. You know, people who've never read it before, you'll get great questions. Can I questions.
1: ask where, where this conference was? I don't want to where, say where because
0: of what I'm getting ready to say. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll tell you.
0: Like, it was somewhere in the Carolinas. Uh, and uh, But there was a professor from a very, very esteemed university uh, that uh, who was there. And they asked, after I was done, they said um, – uh, that's all fascinating, but don't you think you know if you're reading with the Jews, you're going to get a lot of Talmudic and rabbinic interpretation, and a lot of that stuff is just wild, right? It's just you know, and and they meant it in the kind of like it's off the hook. It's it's crazy, you know. It's like it's doing weird things with the text, you know, that we wouldn't we wouldn't approve of exegetically uh, as to how we interpret scripture. Oh, I mean,
1: it's not just that we wouldn't do, but he was implying that there's something. There's something askew here. There's something wrong.
0: Well, well, yeah. That it, it might be it might be unhelpful for Christians to just hear. And I always use the Rabbi Eliezer about uh, G- Genesis two. How did the man know that the woman was his proper mate? He must have had sex with all the animals, uh, and that's <laughs> and by the difference between the animals and the woman, that's how he knew that she was the proper mate. I use that well, as it's
1: an, a, it, well. That's also <clears> implied <throat> by the sequence of the verses. As
0: well, as and it. so that's what. That, so I okay. use it as an example, and then I and I also. And then I and so this person was making this point that 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 the the rabbis could get a little bit weird and wild and you know they don't tame themselves in the way that maybe Augustine would have, Um, and I said yes, but they're also picking up on really subtle. And I said it's it's like this rabbi who says this about having sex with the animal. It shocks us as a modern audience, but he's not making it up out of nowhere. I mean, there there are suggestive elements in the text there, right? Um, Yeah, and
1: he's not necessarily. It's and and the rabbis also. We're sometimes trying to be provocative yes. with that imagery because that way Drew Johnson read it and, and was and remembered it. Right. And now <laughs> and has to think looking- through. I mean, like, he's not saying that, like, you know, Adam, you know, ha- had relations with a, you know, with a lizard or a, and a gerbil. You know, it's just, it, 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 I mean, I'm, I don't want to, I, I, I apologize. I apologize for those of you, especially those of you driving your cars.
0: if I Thanks for making you know, it concrete. I love it. I love, it. I love it. No, but but no, you're but actually is, making the very point, right? By making no, it concrete. The point is
1: that he was, he was assessing the, the possibility of finding a mate. He was identifying he Adam was learning that he has no filial relationship. He has no real relationship right. of commonality with the animal kingdom, yeah. and and discovering who he was. So they express it in these graphic terms. They do. They exaggerate. The exagger narrative exaggeration is a device hmm. that 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 the Jewish sages used, the rabbis used in the Talmud and in the Midrash, to to kind of. Drive home a point with emphasis, mm. but it's it, it's very often a theological point they're yes. driving home, and the point there again is that ad, that human beings are not part of the animal kingdom, which uh, unfortunately that's something that not everyone's so clear on
0: these days. Well,
1: okay. <laughs> so <Because laughs> how did the story end? How did you respond to the guy?
0: Uh, I, well, I said, look, one of the, you know, out of context, just like reading scripture, if you drop in and read something out of context, it might sound wild and immoral, right? Um, but when you read the long scope, if you know you if you read enough rabbinics, you see that they're picking up on very subtle things going on in the text and they're and they're working the angles, right? They're just saying, what are the possibilities here, and through those possibilities, you know, like I'm not big into numerology, but sometimes when people point out numerological things in the text, I'm like, ooh, dang, that's okay, that's hard to get around now that i've now that you've pointed that out to me, right Um so. Mm. Yeah, I said it's it's one tool uh, amongst many, and obviously to neglect an entire tradition of interpretation <clears throat> seems equally problematic, uh, especially for people who, with whom the provenance of the text and the tradition was uh, passed on to us, um, but I, I, they were unconvinced. Uh, but part of it is also, like, if you don't read Hebrew, and, you, and I don't read Aramaic, but uh, a lot of the things that I pick up in the rabbis, I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of noticed something like that as well. Or I look again because they showed it to me, and I'm like, oh, I never noticed that before. So maybe it's a little bit more convincing to me because I can see what they're talking about.
1: Yeah, well, they teach us how to read carefully. Yes, you know, I, I think uh, you know. Sometimes people ask me you know, because I I teach scripture, and I have and uh, and and the particular style I have a, of exegesis that I like to present to Christians when I teach is really not built on quoting the rabbis. Like Mm -hmm. if you, you when I come into a church and I do a Bible study, um, I I won't be quoting the Talmud. I won't be quoting the Midrash. I won't be quoting Jewish commentaries. And, and I do that deliberately. Uh, And what I, and the reason I do it is that I want to sensitize Christians to simply reading the scripture carefully. Mm -hmm. It, you know, people will ask me, like, you know, Rabbi, do you have any tips to how to study? I'm like, just read slowly, read deliberately. <laughs> L- look, look at every single word, every single phrase, ask critical questions about the text, ask, you know, when you read a, a verse, if there's a phrase that doesn't seem necessary, or it states something that we already knew, or it seems there's a redundancy in the text is you know easy to pick up even without translation, I'm sorry, even in translation, of course, there are nuances you're not going to catch in the translations, but that's you know just reading carefully. You can pick up you know uh, so many things, and that's and and you see that in in these some of these strange statements the rabbis make are really based on uh, you know re- just reading the reading the text mm-hmm. really really carefully.
0: Yeah, and I mean, a- amen to all that. We are in some ways, brothers from another mother uh, on Bible reading, I can tell already. Um, I want to go back to something you said, uh, g- jumping back to Christian-Jewish relations. And thanks for parsing mm-hmm. out the old school from the new school. I, I think that's really helpful for a lot of us. And, um, but you mentioned the words survive or survival, uh, You know that the, the kingdom of priests had to go into survival mode. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's one thing that I didn't appreciate until I lived in Israel and began to know more and more Jewish people and kind of heard their stories. And uh, a good friend of mine, Jim Diamond, you know, he was raised in a community where like everybody in the community fled, fled the camps. Uh, like all, all their parents came, uh, from fleeing the camps or out of the camps. Um, and that's when something turned to my mind that, that idea like, oh, the survival of the Jewish people is, is a real and present, uh, concern in ways that, you know, as Americans, we're like, oh, okay, that's all that's over with. The, the world is healed now. We've all figured out what's right and wrong. And um, we, we've kind of all moved on, right? And I didn't realize mm-hmm. that uh, many people haven't. So I wonder why um, also from the same conference, another story, a guy did his whole talk on Luther and celebrated Martin Luther's uh, theology. And, and the whole time I was sitting there thinking, I wonder how my Jewish colleagues would respond to this kind of celebration of Luther. Um, because it's It's interesting. You know, go ahead. Sorry, it's interesting
1: you say that because I'm in a different place on Luther than most Jews are. Okay, you know, but you know, know, go ahead, say what you're going to say because I don't even know how much your listeners know about the problems that Jews have with Luther.
0: Right. Well, so that that's actually the point. I guess I was uh, I'm driving at is I think most Christians don't realize how sensitive the Jewish community is uh, to historical figures who like Luther, who probably, you know, wrote this, the problem of the Jews, right. Uh, who had this kind of anti Semitic streak, uh, at one point in his life. And people try to, you know, say, say it's because of one thing or another, which is fine, but it does have a definitive impact. Um, but, but also just the idea that, that Jews often don't feel safe, um, in every Christian community. And I think for Christians, it's hard for them to understand why that would be the case. So, and talking about Christian Jewish relations, I think Christians might naively just walk up to Jews and say, "Hey, we're we're buddy, <laughs> you know, we all want to be friends. Everything's fine, right?" And uh, they might not mm-hmm. understand why some Jewish uh, communities might say, "Ah, oh, slow down, you know, slow your roll." So maybe yeah. you could help us understand the, the tensions there.
1: Uh, well, I'm happy you brought that up because one of one of the issues here is is really what is perhaps the greatest strength of the Jewish people, but it also turns into a weakness, Hmm. which is our historical perspective. Hmm. Um, and it's something that I didn't even understand about myself until I started hanging out with Christians a lot more, you know, cause I was raised, I'm a rabbi who is the son of a rabbi. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish community. And what that means by the way, as an Orthodox Jew, when you're raised in like an urban Orthodox Jewish community. It means that you have you have very, very little interaction, if any, with people who aren't Jewish, hmm. which might sound weird to people considering that the Jewish people, American Jews are about uh, 2% of the entire U.S. population, maybe a little less. But let's say 2%. And of that 2%, 9% are Orthodox. Hmm. Okay, so... Just, I don't know what that comes out to. I'm not good enough at math, but it's, so we're 9% of 2% of the U.S. population is Orthodox Jews. And nevertheless, if you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community, uh, as an Orthodox Jew, you, you have almost nothing to do with anyone who isn't Orthodox because we have our own school systems um, and all youth activity, education. And and we also and also proximity, uh, physical proximity, because Orthodox Jews, because we observe the Sabbath and we don't ride our cars on the Sabbath, uh, we don't. Uh, that means that by definition, anyone who's an Orthodox Jew will almost universally, with you know, you'll have eccentric outsiders, but pretty much anyone who's in an Orthodox community lives walking distance from the synagogue. Which means, in a small concentric area around every Orthodox synagogue, is the Orthodox Jewish community. That's where they live. So when you live in an Orthodox Jewish community, you're just you're in an Orthodox Jewish bubble, and I didn't. All my friends were Orthodox Jews. Uh, Everyone I knew was an Orthodox Jew. I had a few teachers who taught maybe like chemistry or physics Mm. in high school who like who they brought in from the outside and weren't Jewish, but I I almost knew no no people who were not Jewish, Mm. Um, and. You know, it wasn't until you know I went to college and, and then I started meeting people who weren't Jewish. But when I got into Jewish-Christian relations, I started having more meaningful relationships with people who weren't Jewish. I started realizing that there's something strange about us Jews in that we have a very long historical memory, a very deep historical memory, and, and it's just not the same for other people. So, for example, um, uh, if you speak to someone who's uh, an American from Italian descent, and say to them and ask them, when you're reading the history of Rome, of ancient Rome, Hmm. do you feel like you're reading your own personal history? They'll usually say no. You know, they don't, that's that's ancient Rome, that's not them. Where the truth is it probably is their own personal history, but they just don't think of it that way. Hmm. Um, You know, now this might not be true for Chinese people who never went into exile, uh, but but for i'm saying for most people nowadays that's the case and for jews we have this deep historical identity and it's and it's cultivated by the way we worship the way we live the uniformity of our practice and our liturgy over the course of not just centuries but millennia like literally the prayers that i say word for word are virtually identical to the prayers that were said by jews 1500 years ago. I mean, think about that. Literally. I mean, it's, it's almost an identical hmm. so, uh, uh, practice. So, so this, this creates this deep historical identity. So what will happen, for example, is I'll be speaking about Jewish-Christian relations in a synagogue, explaining to the Jewish community, you know, the importance of my work and sharing some Jewish sources. And inevitably, in the question and answer session, someone's hand will go up and they'll say, Rabbi, how can we be friends with Christians? Think of what they did to us in the Crusades. Right. Now the crusades is a thousand years ago a little less right and so when i tell this to christians they very often sort of laugh like right. they're not laugh they don't mean to be insensitive but they're just like that's absurd that's a thousand years ago but you have to understand that for jews what was done by christians a thousand years ago to jews a thousand years ago when they meet a christian it's what you did to me mm there's this very deep identification. So on the one hand that's a very it's a very that's a very powerful strength like when we when we sit at the Passover Seder and we retell the story of the Exodus from Egypt and we do it in the first person plural we were slaves in Egypt and God took us out and there's a paragraph in there that we say every year at the Seder in every generation everyone must every Jew must view themselves as though they themselves left Egypt and we really identify with our history very deeply when we read the book of Esther on the holiday of Purim when we get to the end and there's the victory we all are there's tangible feeling of of rejoicing over this victory that took place more than 2000 years ago but at the same time it turns into a weakness because jews will today have have such have these deep suspicions of you know like american evangelical christians because of what was done in the spanish inquisition in the in the 15th century uh, you know, so it's an important sensitivity
0: yeah and i think that that uh, you have a really good way of clarifying exactly exactly okay. why they say i mean that's that's brilliant uh what would you say is the you know just to leave on a up note <laughs> <laughs> sorry no no it's it's great um What would you say is just a downright, because you've spent a lot of time around American Christians and other kinds of Christians, and so you kind of know, in in some ways, you probably know more about American Christianity than a lot of American Christians do, because they don't get outside. (laughs) I could
1: write a book. Yeah. I've been thinking I I should write reviews of Christian worship teams. Oh, please. Most people go to one church. Please do. Most people go to one church. Most people go to one church. Most people go to one church. I I'll walk into a church and I'll hear the worship team. And I've got, you know, I hear like a couple dozen every Okay. Year.
0: Well, wait, hold on. Yeah. You just gave me an idea for a whole sub podcast <laughs> stream that we're going to have to start. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I so. have a lot
1: of critiques, by the way. I have a lot of critiques for the, of, of the lyrics yeah. oh, of Christian worship and we will music. be and good. And I'm not talking about. And I have no problem with Christian theology being yeah, Christian. Like, yeah. that's not what I'm talking about. No. But there's some stuff in there that makes me
0: scratch my head. I think the biblical mind listeners all know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if we're... I could
1: just share one example. Yeah, yeah, there's please popular, do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a popular worship song that I've heard in a number of evangelical churches, which refers to God's love mm. as reckless.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about. You know the song I'm yes, talking about. Yes. And
1: I remember hearing that and thinking, that is. I don't care whether you believe in a Trinity in Jesus or you're a Jew. How can you refer to any aspect yeah. of God's love for us, anything about God, as reckless? It is it is it's it's absolute blasphemy to refer to God as reckless. Yeah, and I, I can't believe that people even say that.
0: It's the the worst of American therapeutic emotional r- romanticism being applied to God. Yeah, yeah. Uh oh boy. Okay, so besides all uh, uttering semi-blasphemous uh things in our worship songs. <laughs> <psalms, laughs> what, what what's uh one step, you know, if you're in a big city and there are synagogues, what's one step that Christians could take towards um you know, just trying to understand their sisters and brothers uh in, within Judaism. Well, number 1 is
1: be sensitive to, to that history. Understand that the discomfort that Jews will have about talking about faith with you is not about you, mm. and it's not about some you know, hatred of, uh, of, of Christianity, it, it, and it's not even necessarily about fear, but it's about the fact that just like, there's a, this, this historical memory is very real. Things that were done in the name of Jesus 200, 300, 500 years ago, might as well have been last week. Mm. And when Christians will say things like, oh, I don't identify with those Christians, or those weren't real Christians, you know, I don't consider those, that does not, what, what, what you're thinking is you're distancing yourself from that anti-Semitic uh, persecution, but what the Jew hears is that you're not taking responsibility. Mm. And it actually comes off as callous, um, as a, and and therefore uh, a sense of contrition uh, would be would be a better would be a better approach. Mm. Uh, but you know, if you wanted to learn about Judaism, the truth is nowadays things are changing, uh, and in most in most Orthodox Jewish communities, uh, they're they're very welcoming. If you would walk in there and say, "Hey, I'm a Christian, and I just want to you know, I love the Word of God, and I I just want to I want to learn about what you're doing, and come into the synagogue." Um, as long as you make it very, very clear that you have no agenda of, of, of you know, sharing the gospel or, right, or, right. or witnessing, as long as you make it very, very clear, uh, more and more, I can't say this about every place. I'm not in every synagogue, but more and more, they will be open to you sitting in, and and uh, and and the, they might even buddy you up with someone mm-hmm. who will explain to you what's going on, and uh, and you'll be surprised what you learn.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Rabbi uh, Wallachie, oh, you're not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. Not <laughs> Might a doctor. as well be. You're a doctor in, in no. Judaism for me. <laughs> uh, Rabbi uh, Wallachie, thank you so much for your wisdom. I can already tell we're going to be asking you back on for more. So right. uh, get prepared for the invitation. Thank Anytime. you so much for your time. Anytime.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.